Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're talking about growing up. There's different types of growth. There's a physical growing up. And that's the easy one in one sense because it's very obvious. You can see the difference between children and adults because you see the children are smaller. They tend to be, you know, and you can see the adults are bigger. But that's just one form of growing up. That's just physically growing up. I'm sure you've discovered by now that physical growth is not the only type of growth that there is. There's emotional growing up or maturity. There's, there's, there's a financial growing up. There's a, all kind, every phase of your life has a, has a, is a phase where you are in the process of growing up. <clears throat> and then there's a spiritual growing up, and that's what we've been talking about. We see in these scriptures, we're not going to read through all these this morning because there's some things I want to get back into again that we started last week. He talks about that God, when you were saved, did not leave you where you were. Most of us, I would venture to say virtually all of us, when we were saved, I can certainly speak for myself, I had no idea what I was getting into. All I knew is that God was after me. In some of your cases, all you knew is you were headed to hell. <laughs> that, that, you know, that's an important thing to know. That you were headed to hell and Jesus gave you an opportunity not to go there. If that's all there was, that's good news right there. That's enough right there for us to rejoice for all of eternity. And if you don't, that means you've got no concept of what hell's like. Because it's very real. It's a place of tremendous torment and fire, the Bible says. And it's forever. Forever. We have, it's hard for our minds to grasp forever because in our life experience, nothing's been forever. And that the Bible's clear that heaven is forever and hell is forever. So if all He did for us is just take hold of you and pull you out of the doorway to hell, that's enough right there. But God's much bigger than that. See, God is, God's a positive God. God doesn't just avoid something in your life. He brings you into something. He doesn't just take you out of something. He takes you, in, he takes you out of one place in order to take you into something else. He brought the children of Israel out of Egypt in order to take them into the promised land. He's rescued your life from hell in order to take you to something so much better. And in the process, God is working in us. He doesn't leave us alone. Sometimes we'd like Him to leave us alone, but not really. To me, the scariest times I've ever gone through is when it, I couldn't sense God's presence and I would, have you left me? Have you left me? And see, that's one of the reasons. Ever go through experience where it felt like you didn't know where God is? That means you're normal. Everybody goes through that. And that's when we learn to walk by faith and not by how we felt. It's wonderful when you have an experience of God and you feel the goosebumps all over your body and you're just, you know, but there's no faith in that. That's fine. But then there's the other mornings you get up and it's like, I don't know where he is and I don't know where I am and I don't even know if I'm saved today. So I go back into God's word and what God's word says about me and what God's word says about him and who, that he's my father and he loves me, whether I feel it or not, because today I'm going to walk by faith and not by my feelings and emotions. It's amazing when you do that, how the feelings and emotions come back. God wants us to walk by faith. That's what we're learning on Wednesday nights together. I lost track of where I was. <laughs> oh, God's working in your life to develop you, to grow up. And what we've seen as we've read through these verses is that God's goal, the picture of you he has on the refrigerator that he wants to see, where he sees he's taking you to, is nothing short of than the image of Christ. 
God's goal for your life is that you end up walking like Christ, talking like Christ, acting like Christ, and thinking like Christ. Because you understand God's already put his nature inside of you. When you were born again, your old nature died, and God literally put his own nature, the nature of his son, in you already. That's why God can look at you wherever your life may be like right now. Whatever, how weak you may feel, however messed up you may feel, if you're in Christ, he looks at you and can see that picture on his refrigerator because he knows who he's put in you. See, his confidence is not in you. His confidence is in the Spirit of God he's put in you. And let me give you a word of reassurance. His Spirit has lots of experience. You're not the only tough case he's ever had to deal with. Standing before you is a classic tough case. And this room is full of tough cases. And the body of Christ is full of untold multitudes of tough cases. He knows how to do it. He's a master at his craft. We just have to learn how to cooperate with him. And that learning really is learning how to trust the process to him and not to ourselves and just learn how to follow him. But our purpose in this series is to recognize that God is at work in you. He's at work in you to bring you to the place where you literally mature spiritually. Not only you individually, but us together as a body of believers. And that's what we began to talk about last week, actually the week before that. And I want to spend, we're going to go back over because I kind of rushed, I felt like I rushed through it last week. And I want to kind of dig down into this because I really sense in my spirit that there's something important for us to grasp because it will literally change you. It will change how you pray. It will change how you come to church. Not the, not the road you take, but the attitude you come into church with. It will change how you see yourself. It will change everything about your walk with God. And it is essential for our maturing as a body together that we have a, a, a firm understanding of this. Not just a concept in our mind, but this begins to become a reality down inside of us. Amen. So read with me. We're going to only read a f- few of these first verses. Read with me now as we begin to look again at at Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. We've gone back and looked at what the therefore refers to. It's talking about what God has done in your life when you came to Christ. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So Paul's pattern is this. Paul's pattern is instead of telling you, look, this is what you need to be doing, he starts out by telling us, this is who you are. So we looked at several weeks ago in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul saying, this is who you are in Christ. When you came to Christ, this is what God put in you. This is his plan for you, talking to them individually. But there's a second realization we have to come to. Because not only is Paul saying, he's not only reminding them of what God has done for them, then the next thing he reminds them of is what, who they are together. Because this is very key. So now Paul goes on to talk about that subject in these next few verses. That we walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He's not talking about something we're going to be called to. He's talking about something you've already called to this. So God's called you to this. God's made provision for this. He's done everything he can do in terms of providing what's necessary for us to come into this. All we have to do now is begin to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. And how do we do that? With all lowliness and gentleness and and long-suffering. So that's humility and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing 
not with ourselves or with God, but bearing with one another in love. Now, if God has to call us, <laughs> if God has to remind us and call us of how to get along with one another, and he uses the word bearing with one another, that tells me we're going to have an opportunity to bear with one another. Bear with means get along with peaceably. That tells me that God understands that we don't naturally get along. Oh, come on, let's be real. Don't look so holy. Oh, we don't do that. We walk along. Come on. I didn't share with the first service, but I did a second service last time. Just look around you. How many of you see a blue chair next to you? That tells us something. And, I, you know, I'm, like the, I'm just like you. I come into a place, I, you know, I'm going to sit down, like my wife's sitting right up tight next to me, but I feel a little more comfortable, as much as I love everybody, to have an empty chair on my left and then maybe one on the other side. I just, you know, it's just a little space, you know. Love you dearly, but a little space makes me feel just a little more comfortable. Love you. But I love my space. I love to have a little space between me and the ones I love. Now we're getting real. God already knows. Bearing with one another tells me that God understands, and we're going to see today, it's also God's plan. God will put you with people that you have to bear with. Oh, get a nerve there, didn't we? Don't look at your spouse. We'll get there. God puts people in your life as a part of his plan to help you to grow up that you have to bear with, with all long suffering and patience and gentleness and humility. Oh, doesn't that sound like fun? Remember, his goal for your life, and I'm going to shock some of you, is not to have fun. He doesn't mind it. His goal for your life is not to enjoy it. He doesn't mind you enjoying your life. He loves to enjoy, but that's not the purpose of your life. If God's purpose for, was for you to have fun and enjoy it, as soon as you got saved, he'd take you out right away and take you right to heaven. Because the source of all joy is his presence. The Bible says in the fullness of his presence, in, in his presence is fullness of joy. Yes. Yeah. So if that were God's purpose for your life, the main goal for your life was just to bless you with fun and pleasure and all those things, which there's nothing wrong with. But if that was the main purpose for your life here, he'd have taken you out as soon as you were born again. That way you can't get any trouble. Some of us have gotten in trouble since that time. Take you right out of here, 
and you'd be in his presence, and he'd have you, and you'd have him, and it'd be wonderful. But God has, you understand that, that when you, you're growing up here, is to prepare you for what God has for you there. Because yeah. yeah. if, if, to the extent that you haven't grown up here, you're going to have to grow up there. Ooh, I thought we just automatically get changed into this perfect being. Think again. There are assignments when you're in heaven. We may get to look at one of them today or maybe next week. There are assignments, and you understand you're in training now for the assignment you're going to have there. God's developing in you if you will allow him character and traits and disciplines that you will... I thought everything's perfect. It is in one sense, but God has assignments for us because we're going to come back down here during the millennial reign, and you're going to have a job in that reign. And the job you're going to have will depend on how well you've grown and matured so that God can trust you with that. The Bible says, don't you understand that you will rule over angels? So this is serious stuff. This is important. It's not just, well, you know, if I grow mature, then I'll be a little happier. No, it's about, this is God has a much bigger perspective than we do. I'm going to show you an example of what he's talking about here. So let's go on. First, excuse me, I haven't gotten into our subject yet. Endeavoring, verse 3, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We talked last week about the, notice the words here, the term. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Keep means you've got something and someone's trying to take it away from you. So God has already given us a, a unity in the Spirit and someone's trying to take it away from us. We talked about that unity. It's that sense of being, belonging together. And that's really what this, this part of the series is about. It's learning to recognize this unity. That we are one not only with God, but we're one with each other. The unity, so there's someone trying to pull apart this unity, create division. And pull apart the unity of the body of Christ and your unity with the Father. Pulling at them. The world system out there is intended to pull apart the body of Christ and to separate. Because Satan understands what the church doesn't understand. Satan understands who we are. And he's scared that we're going to wake up and realize who we really are. And I believe we're about to wake up and realize who we really are. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, for there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were all called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in all of you or you all. What we're talking about really is in verse 4, there's one body. Now, look down to verse 25. I want to just show you an example of why this is important to understand. Paul talks about some other things in here, and then he says in verse 25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each, of one, each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Why? Because it's a good thing to do? Well, it is a good thing to do. But why does he tell us that it's crucial that we speak truth to one another? Why? Because we are members of one another. 
We are members of one another. So Paul's saying there that the reason why it's important that we walk in honesty and truth with each other is because we belong to each other. Now, just so we can get this clear, we're going to go turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We were there last week, and we kind of went breezed through it, and I want to go back through that again, and, and then we're going to look at another example of something. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This letter is written to a church that Paul calls carnal or immature, spiritually immature. And the evidence of their spiritual immaturity is, and you'll see in chapter 1 and 2, and actually it's throughout the, the, the letter. The evidence of that spiritual immaturity is that there were divisions among them. Paul says, You're divided. You have got cliques formed. Some of you say, I'm of Paul, and some of you say, I'm of, of Peter or Cephas, you'll see in some translations. Some of you say that I'm a Paul of Apollos' group. These were all men that had come and preached there. And they'd formed cliques. And he says this, he says, has Christ been divided? And so he's correcting them, he's disciplining them. And the way he's going to do that is, again, the same way he did in Ephesians, is he understands that the reason that they've fallen into this error, the reason that they're still immature, is they do not understand who they are together. So instead of laying into them and saying, you're a bunch of immature turkeys, get it straight. How come you don't have it straight? He steps back and says, here's the problem. You don't recognize who you are. One of the evidences of their immaturity is, they, is that they were flowing in spiritual gifts in an abundance. That's not the evidence, but what they, the, the attitude they had with these gifts is they developed a pride. And some of them were saying to them, one another, you know, well, the gifts flow in me with greater abundance than they do in you. I flow in the gift of, of tongues and interpretation of tongues. And another were saying, yeah, but I flow in the revelation gifts of knowledge and of, of discerning of the spirits. And they were seeing it, they were in competition with each other over something God gave to them from a totally different reason. One of the very sobering lessons of this is that although the Spirit of God was flowing through them very, very powerfully, they were a very carnal and immature church. So that tells us right away that the measure of your spirituality and of your spiritual maturity is not in how God's using you. The measure of your spirituality isn't what we're talking about. And so they were divided. And they, they, there was, they were using these gifts in a very divisive way. And so the Paul, Apostle Paul says this to them. We'll start in verse 4. He says, there are diversities of gifts, but it's the same Spirit. And there are differences of administration. That word means how, it's, how it's actually, these gifts are actually uh, utilized. But it's the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities or way people operate in them. But it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one of us for the profit of everybody else. So what he's saying is although these gifts operate in different ways in different people, and although there are different gifts and they manifest differently in different people, yet they're all one Spirit and one God. And one Lord, same as he said over in Ephesians 4, 
and they operate in us differently, but for the benefit of all of us. And now he's going to go into a discussion that we're going to look into where he's going to try to make this clear to them, and that's why we're looking in on this discussion. We'll go over to verse 12. Because he goes through and names these gifts. and In each case, he says that they're as one as the Spirit wills. Verse 11 says, But there's one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He, the Holy Spirit, wills. You understand, we talked about this last week, there's only one Holy Spirit. And that's what Ephesians 4 and a number of other places. And that's the same Spirit that dwelt in Jesus Christ. And that's important because that means the Spirit that's in you is the same Spirit that was in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.11 says, If that same Spirit that dwelled in Christ is in you, He will also quicken or make alive your mortal body. There's only one Holy Spirit, so you don't have a watered-down version of Him. You don't have a smaller version, it's just your vision of Him is smaller and watered-down. But He's the same Spirit. And these gifts that Paul's talking about here, are, he, his point is, although they operate in different ways in different people, different personalities. We have four pastors on staff, all of whom have ministered from this pulpit, and all of whom minister differently because we have different personalities, slightly different giftings, and God uses all those different giftings. We had a, a speaker in a month or so ago, Mary Ann Brown, and she's very different. <laughs> and God uses that difference. And the difference doesn't mean, oh, well, we can't have her in because she's different. No, we look and we rejoice in the differences. That's why we can have a church like this that have about 30 nations represented and come together and worship together. Worship Together. Not only that, sit together. You may have trouble believing there are churches in this country that people sit together by their color. They may come in the same building, but they don't sit together. How that must grieve the Spirit of God. So there's many different gifts, and they operate differently in different people, but Paul's point is there's only one Spirit. For as the body, verse 12 now, as the body is one and has many members, all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. So this point here he's teaching them is what Christ is like, and what Christ has a body on this earth, and that body is the church. And so his point here is going to be this. His church is made up of many different members and the members are different from one another because they have different functions, but don't forget it's still one body. So the example he's going to use is the human body. He says, understand this, that in the same way your body has many different members. It has feet which have different parts and toes and toenails. And you have hands and you have ears. And they're all diff- they're different from one another because they have different... And their differences are based on their function. The differences are based on their function. 
But even though they're different because they have different functions and different purposes, it's still one body because they all belong to that same body. So he's going on here to say your feet and your hands don't have an identity crisis. They cooperate together and take care of one another because they recognize that they're part of a, your body. And we used the example last week. You get up in the middle of the night and every part of you is asleep, basically, except your feet. And as you turn the corner to go into the bathroom, whack, you hit your big toe. All the rest of you wake up. <laughs> and when you get back in bed, your wife doesn't say, you know, what happened? Well, my big toe stubbed itself. Wasn't watching where it was going. No, I stubbed my toe. Why? Because although you've got different parts, they look different, they act different, they function differently, that you have an identity of them all being part of you. Therefore, as a result, when you cracked your big toe, every oh, other part of you immediately goes into operation to take care of the part of your body that now hurts. Why? Because your body sees your toe as part of you. Now let's read on because there's another side to this. And then we'll go on to an example that God has given us to live out in front of him. So he goes on and says in verse 13, For by one spirit you are all baptized into one body. The word baptized there means be immersed. So by one spirit we've all been joined together in one body. Look at this. It doesn't matter where you came from. Whether you are a Jew or a Greek, whether you're a slave or free, wherever your, whatever your, whatever your background, whether you came from, whatever your ethnic background, whatever your, 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 your racial background, whatever your social background, none of that matters because you have a new identity. Because you've left all that and you've now become joined to a new identity, which is Christ. All have been made to drink of one spirit. That again is a symbol for being united to. Verse 14. For in fact the body is not one member, but it's many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, am I not part of the body? Is it therefore not the body? If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye? Because in other words, because I don't look like the other parts and function like the other parts, does that mean I'm not part of the body? Of course not. If the whole body were an eye, verse 17, where would the hearing be? In other words, if every part was made the same way, the body couldn't function. We need to have different parts that function differently. Verse 18. But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. Notice who made the choice. I'm going to go on just a slight rabbit trail here. It's my belief that God assigned you to a church. And I think as we go through this study, you'll understand why I say that. Because first of all, he says... God has assigned the parts to the body. God has assigned the parts to his body. And this church is a portion of his body. And therefore God assigns toes and toenails. And little fingers. And hair follicles. And nose hairs and all the rest of that stuff. God assigns it to the body to have a function. God has assigned you to his body to perform a function. And when you begin to find that place and perform that function, you will find contentment. Because you're doing what you were made to do. But it's God 
that made that choice and designed you that way and put you in that place. I'm convinced that everything in my life I go back through and look over my life. All my background, both as a lawyer, the training, a lot of things I've gone through were to prepare me for being in this position that I'm in now. Not just the knowledge, but there's training, there's discipline that was built into me. And not just through the law school and the practice of law, but through other things I've been through. Some of them were mistakes I've made, and God watched me, and he worked his way, those things out of me, and, and taught me how to handle things and prepare me for things. And I'm convinced now that all of that was to prepare me to be this part. Well, he's doing the same thing in you. Different parts. God has assigned the different parts. I want to move on. And then basically goes on and says in the rest of that section, he says, but the other thing is, all right, just because you're different doesn't mean you're not part of the same body. The other side of that is just because your body has different parts doesn't mean that, they, that one part's better than the other because they're parts of the same body. Just because I'm the pastor of the church, that's just my function. That's just my function. There's a grace to stand in this office and there's an anointing to stand in this office. But the moment I get in my car to go home, I got to do what you do and everybody else does. There's not a grace to live it out. I've got to take God's word. I've got to exercise my faith. I've got to do the same things you have to do. Because God equips you to do what you're called to do. But my, my, the office of pastor is my function. It doesn't mean I'm better than you, higher than you. It's a function that I've been given. Just like your nose and your ears and your toes have functions. And just because they're different doesn't mean they're not part of the body. They're not, and they're not to be in competition with each other. And that's sort of where we ended last week also. Now, there's another way that God has of communicating this. Turn with me to, back to Ephesians. We'll look in chapter 5. Still talking about the same thing. And these are very familiar verses to, to many of us, but the real purpose of these verses is different than many people use them for. Chapter 5 starts out by saying, therefore, be, you know, therefore you know means he's, it's based on something he just said. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Now I want you to drop down for what our discussion is here. Verse 19 he says, speaking to one another in psalms and spiritual hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another in fear or reverence of God, some translations say the Lord. Submitting to one another. That word submit can cause trouble for us. Then he really messes around with us. Wives, submit to your own husbands, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head, oh, it's getting worse now, isn't it? Is the head of the wife, just as Christ is, just as Christ, here's the answer now, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as Christ is, the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own, own husbands in everything. Okay, ready wives, this helps you now. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church, notice it doesn't stop there, and gave himself for her, 
that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her, the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking regarding Christ and the church. What's he doing here? He's again trying to teach this principle that we are together the body of Christ. And he's trying to show them an example that they should be familiar with so that this union and this oneness is something that they can understand. And so what he goes back to, now turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. What he goes back to now is God's original plan for marriage, which is still his plan today. Now, the reason he does this, and the reason we're going to spend a little time getting into this, and even if we don't finish it today, that's okay. This, is, this has all kinds of good byproducts to it. At the root of almost every marital problem, I'll say almost because I don't know every. At the root of almost every marital problem, often it's communication, But the ultimate problem is this. It's how that husband and wife see that marriage. When I'm doing premarital counseling, often what I'll ask you is, well, tell me what you think marriage is. And usually the best answer I get is it's a partnership. I remember sitting with one couple, beautiful young couple, just so excited about to get married. We're We're like a week away. A little more than a week away. There's an expensive wedding planned. And I said, if that's your idea of marriage, it's not going to work. I said, then you don't understand what marriage is. If you think it's a partnership, see, what a partnership is is I bring my part in, you bring your part in, and together we share that enterprise together. But partnerships can be dissolved. If the purpose for the partnership is over, then I pull out what I put in, you pull out what you put in, and we go our merry way and go out into some other partnership. And see, that's exactly how people see marriage at its very best. That's not how God sees marriage. And so what I try to do is get a husband and wife or a couple in premarital counseling begin to see marriage the way God sees marriage and understand what marriage really is because if you have an understanding of what really is, it will change how you conduct it. That doesn't mean you can't forget and walk away, walk away and, and make mistakes, but what it does is it's something that you can always go back to. Genesis chapter 2, this was the first one. We'll start in verse um, 18. And the Lord God said, and the Lord God said, and the Lord God said, the Lord God said, the Lord God said. Why are you saying that over and over again? You'll see why. It's not good for that man to be alone. Notice who didn't say It wasn't good. The man. 
I kind of grew up thinking that what happened is Adam went to God complaining of how lonely he was. Until it hit me who said it wasn't good. It was God that said it wasn't good. My own belief is that Adam was fat, dumb, and happy, like most men. Not always fat or not, but content. I mean, why not? He didn't have to get along with anybody. The newspaper's his. The TV clicker's his. He can go to pay golf when he wants to. <clears throat> the chores or whatever he decides to do, when he decides to do it. I mean, he's... Doesn't have to, he doesn't have to get along with anybody. He's got all these animals to take care of. He's got this assignment, but he doesn't have to consult anybody in doing it. Yeah, he walks with God the cool of the day, you know, but he can get along with God because God understands him perfectly. And he understands himself. And now God steps into this and says, that's not good. That's one of the most profound statements in the Bible. Because who made this man? God. So that means God saw something and said, there's something about this that isn't good for this man. So what does he do about it? He said, I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground that we're going to drop down, because God gives, forms beasts and everything else and brings it to Adam, and, and there was nothing found comparable to him. There's a significance there we don't want to go to right now. But the animals weren't comparable to him. Only another human being would be. Verse 21, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs. Actually, in the Hebrew, it says a rib, and the word rib in Hebrew doesn't just mean one of these things. It literally means your side. It means a covering or a side. In other words, he took half of him out. Now, to understand what's happening here, you've got to step back. We, I won't go back into the scriptures. I'll just tell you what they say, because most of you are familiar with it. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he said, it made man. Let us make man in our image. So God made man in his image. That means there was nothing put into that first man that was not also in God. Because here's what happens. In chapter 2, God takes this man that has all of God's attributes in him. All of God's personality characteristics, all of God's tendencies are in this one man because God made him in his image. And then God says it's not good for this man to be alone. So what God does is he puts him to sleep and he pulls out of him half of him. And now forms that half into a new human being. And the half he takes out now takes out of this man half of God's attributes. So there are attributes that are now in this woman that used to be combined together in this one man. That are now no longer in him alone, in him, they're now in her. We call those her feminine attributes. But they were originally in God. And where we struggle with that, well, God's a man. Well, no, God was male and female. He didn't create something that was not like him at all. He pulled out of this man the female part of him. The intuitiveness, the sensitivity, the emotional side. All the side that are typically we identify as the, as the women's, the female qualities, the characteristics. The tender, nurturing, caring side. 
One of God's names in the Old Testament is El Shaddai. Yeah. You know what that means? The many-breasted one. It's the nurturing, caring, supplying side of God. Now look what God's done. Why is this so good? Notice God said it was good. Adam didn't. (laughs) But God knows best. Father knows best, right? God pulls these attributes out, now puts them in a brand new human being. Well, let's go on and read, because I want to show you what Adam says here. No, no, stop here. I, I, want, I want to do that afterwards. So now, here's the situation now. He wakes up. Some men are still waiting to wake up. <laughs> he wakes up and finds out what God's done. What have I gotten into? <laughs> And now he realizes there's half of him missing. That half, the intuitive, the sensitive half, the emotional half, the caring, nurturing half, is now in another human being who has her own will, makes her own decisions, and sees things her way. I should have heard more amens than that. <laughs> now what he used to be able to decide and process all by himself, he's got to communicate with somebody else. And they have to come into a place of agreement. I shared with you last week, one of the interesting features of your human body is it does this process. Your left eye does not see things exactly the same way as your right eye. Your left ear does not hear things exactly the same way as your right ear. Your left eye sees one view and your right eye sees another view. And what happens is when those two different viewpoints get into your brain, your brain doesn't reject one as being wrong. What it does is it blends the two together and gives you what's called depth of field. So if you close one eye and try to drive home, you'll find it's more challenging. In the same way, your left ear does not hear exactly the same perspective as your right ear. That's why it's on the op- they're on opposite sides of your head. That's where stereo effect comes from. Different channels are recorded from different parts of an orchestra. But when your brain hears the left channel and the right channel, it doesn't reject one of them as being wrong. It blends the two together because they have a different perspective. They're both right. They just see things differently. So as your brain blends them together... Now you have a depth of sound. You have a stereophonic sound. That's the way Adam was. He saw things and felt things from both perspectives and could process them within himself and and make the easy analysis and understanding. He didn't have to communicate with himself. He knew what he was feeling. But now, it's in her. Now, he doesn't feel those same things anymore. He's got to hear what she says she feels. And now what's got to happen is together they got to reach decisions. Now I want to ask you a question because I asked this question. God said what he had before wasn't good. Now this more difficult situation which they have to endure together. Now what they've got to develop is what we saw in Ephesians 4. Some humility, some patience, 
some long-suffering, and some enduring in order to learn how to work this out. That's God's plan. Ladies and gentlemen, that's God's purpose for your marriage. To put together two people that are different, that see things differently, feel things differently, understand things differently, and say, get along. Come to a place of unity because there's only one way you can do that and that's to learn how to walk in love. And the only way, the natural reaction to these differences is to reject the person that has the other point of view. That's the natural instinct of humanity. Well, we don't agree, so we, we join ourselves around, and that's what we tend to do. We join ourselves around people that are like us and talk like us and think like us because that's more comfortable for us. Because we don't have to work at getting along. We don't have to work to walk in love. And so the tendency in a marriage is when these differences begin to show up about the third or fourth week or whatever. Sometimes it doesn't take that long. And there's an old principle what my wife and I learned ago years ago. We, started, we did things called marriage encounter weekends 30 years ago. And one of the principles on those weekends is, is that the, the trait in him and in her that first attracted you often turns out to be the one that annoys you the most. He's fun-loving and easygoing and he's everything good. And now that's irresponsible. Because you see, when you were dating and engaged... You saw the fun-loving part because you weren't joined to that yet. But once you say, I do, you're now stuck with that. (laughs) Now you've got to rely on this fun-loving, easygoing guy who now you discover he's fun-loving and easygoing when you're in a crisis. When decisions have to be made. How can that work? Why would God do that? Because here's what Adam understood. But he had an advantage that we don't have. You see, he started out with all these in him. And they're pulled out now, and he recognizes, because look what he says. Verse 8, verse 23. Verse 22 ends by saying, He made the woman, he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of her out of man. What he's saying is, I now know this is a different being, but I recognize that's my flesh. I recognize that although we're now in two bodies, we're still that same one person. But we now have this one person in two bodies with two minds and two wills. But the reason this will work is because I recognize that although she's now in a, it's now that part of me is now in a separate body, we're still that same one person because that's my flesh. And those are my bones. Now look at this last verse because this is the key to all of it. Well, otherwise, this is just a nice academic study we're going through. Therefore, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or made one with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The very first couple started out in one body 
with all those qualities in one body, one will, one brain, one way of looking at things, and God separated them out into two. But it's still one being now living in two bodies to function together as one and see things together as one. That was the first couple. But every other couple God brings to that same place. But they can't all come out of one. Instead, she came out of the Trenner family 42 and a half years ago. And I came out of the Pfeffer family. Her background was very different than my background. She was one of two girls. Everything was prim and proper and everything was neat in its place. I was the oldest of five boys in chaos. <laughs> First time she came to visit my family, she was in shock. My mother had this beautiful meal. She lays it out in front of these five boys. And, and all of a sudden, you know, she says, whatever they said, I don't remember if they said great because we weren't saved back then. You know, the food disappeared. It was not only off the plates, but it was consumed before she could decide what she wanted. She's sitting there in shock. What have I gotten into? My mother saw this and none of the, boy, none of the boys saw it. They just, their food was on the table. They ate it. So my mother literally went and fixed another meal just for Anita. <laughs> so, slightly different backgrounds. I came from a background where the norm was everyone went to college and beyond. She came from a background where that was not the norm. And then God joins us together. And we begin to realize these differences are there. And we have to learn how to work them out and walk them out. The first 10 years, I didn't learn too much. Until I began, then I got saved. We got saved. And then I began to realize that these differences, I'll never forget, I can almost see where I was, but I never get hearing. I was complaining to God. God, I can't get her to think the way I do. She doesn't think logically. We'll sit down and have these discussions, and she goes all around this way, and I'll say, but look, A is this, B is that. Therefore, C has to be. She said, I don't care what C has to be. I said, I don't know how to deal with that. I said, God, please help her to learn to think. My and I heard as clearly as I've ever heard anything. He says, I didn't make her to think like you do. That was a shock. Because my next question was, well, why not? But I didn't dare ask that because I realized God was trying to teach me something. And if he said that's the way he made her, then there must be something in that that I need to learn. And that began my journey, which has been going on for now an additional 32 years of learning to understand and, and, and accept and, and, and see ourselves as this one. And she does the same thing. So the key is this, and we're, we're going to go on with this next week because this is important. Uh, first, I was just going to do one Sunday on this and kind of go on through it, but this is so crucial for where God's taking us that we understand that we are members of one another. Amen. We're not just called to get along with each other. We're not just called to walk in love because the point is, why should I love you? I'm, let's get real. real. I, why, Jesus commanded me. That should be enough, but why? We saw the answer in Ephesians 425, because we're members of one another. 
And I believe with all my heart that where, where, where things are headed, that understanding the, how much we belong to one another and how we are tied together in a unity in Christ is going to become critical for where we're headed. Enough so that I'm going to take the time to go over this enough so that we have an understanding. What we see here is that the example that, that, that God uses for this unity of parts together, different parts being part of one together, is marriage. That's one of the purposes of marriage, is an example to others of what that unity is like. It's interesting, before... One of the last things Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross, it's in John, I think it's John 13. He says, the world will know what I'm like by the way you love one another. They're going to know what I'm like by the way you get along with each other. I don't mean tolerate each other. I mean the degree to which you sincerely care and care for one another. I venture to say we've not done that great a job. Not just so much here, but the church as a whole. Fights with each other. We're the first, we, you know, there's an old expression that the church is the only organ, organism on the earth that eats its young, that eats its, eats, its wounded. Somebody gets hurt, we turn on them. How that must grieve, because we're one body. And the reason we do that is because we do not understand that together we are one body in Christ. We sing that song, but that's literally who we are. And the example that, that the Bible teaches us, that Jesus is using in Ephesians chapter 5, the example that God gives us in, in, in Genesis is the example of a man and woman who come from different backgrounds, different education, whatever it is, and God supernaturally joins them together as one. That first one started as one and now lived as two. From that point on, every other marriage is the opposite. You get two different individuals that are brought together and God brings them to a place of unity just as he did with that first one. We've been married long enough that we, we begin to, now we're beginning to think the same way. I'm not sure which one of us is adjusting. <laughs> but we'll turn each other, you know, she'll start to say something, I was just thinking the same thing. We begin to feel the same things. And we're going to talk about next week is the effects of that union. It is literally a covenant. It is a blood covenant. And we'll talk next week about what a blood covenant is. I may, I'm going to at some point this year teach on the blood covenant because it's the basis of everything God does with us. But understanding who we are in Christ together requires some understanding of covenant. And understanding marriage understand, requires some understanding of covenant. Because I said a few minutes ago... That, that marriage is not a partnership, then what is it? It's a blood covenant. And I'll give you this clue and then we'll end with it. The difference is in a partnership, you bring your assets together and share them together for a joint purpose. In a covenant, you give all of yourself to this union. It's literally a union where the two become one. The two become one. And when two have become one, you can't separate them out without pain. And we'll talk about that next week.